hard work or for a, for a command obeyed without complaint. And this is all good and right and mirrors the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. And in our text, I believe Paul provides for us a linchpin verse to hang on in verse 3. He reminds us, or he tells us, of what is good and pleases God our Savior. As if he is instructing Timothy, appealing to his childlike sentiments, encouraging him, motivating him to lead the church in such a way that he would have a well-ordered ministry that is good and pleasing in the sight of God. The driving question I'd like us to consider tonight is do we labor to please God in our worship, in our ministry, in the way we dress, in the way that we serve, or are we merely seeking to please ourselves? I'd like to consider this and discern this question with a fresh childlike way, remembering that God gives grace to his people as we seek his pleasure, as we find our joy in the very pleasures of God. I'd like to divide up our text three ways uh, by considering how God's find pleasure when we do things his way, regarding worship, regarding ministry, and as we exercise our gender roles as defined by God. Well, the language we find in verse 1 and 8 indicate that Paul was addressing matters of corporate worship. In verse 1, Paul urges Timothy and the entire church to pray. Prayer is foremost and critical to God's people in their calling to worship. And you'll notice in verse 1 there are four distinct terms for prayer. And the emphasis isn't so much on how they're different. Now, they cover everything from personal supplications to prayer in general. Uh, the kind of prayer which pleads on behalf of other people. And lastly, thanksgiving. But the important thing to consider in this verse and afterwards is that Paul wants us to pray for all people. For all kinds of people. And he goes on in verses 2 through 7 to, use, to begin a campaign of universals to talk about our ministry of worship and prayer and gospel preaching is for the benefit of all people. In verse 2, he begins by telling us that we ought to pray for our leaders. And this is a very pervasive theme throughout the scriptures. You recall in his letter to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah tells the people to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city and to pray to the Lord because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Likewise, even the pagans sought the prayers of God's people. In Darius the Mede's letter, in which he commissioned the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, he requests this very thing, that the people would offer sacrifices pleasing to God, to the God of heaven, and to pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. The state has a vested interest in the prayers of God's people. 
I find it surprising and somewhat ironic that although we have largely exiled prayer from our public school systems, Congress continues to have formal public prayers. Friends, this is a vital role in our calling to be the salt and light of the earth, to pray fervently for our leaders, to pray mightily, to pray continuously, to pray forcefully that the gates of hell would topple and that the kingdom of God would penetrate every government, every institution, and every person over the face of the entire earth. I know that many of you pray for President Bush, and right you should. You also know full well that he will no longer be president a year and a half from now. And so I question you, will you continue to pray for the next president, even if she is not the one you prefer? Verse 2 at the end introduces this principle of reciprocation of how the church and the state relate to one another. And I believe that Paul is alluding to the very fruits of our labor in worship and prayer. You see, as we bless the state with our prayers, so we are blessed with peace, with a well-ordered state that provides protection against disorder, injustice, and wrongful persecution. Paul commends us to be an example of living peaceful and quiet lives, living godly lives of holiness and dignity. I believe that that Paul's message here is similar to Peter's in 1 Peter 2, exhorting us to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Reports have it that in China there has been remarkable progress in recent years, in the last decade or so, as the Christian church grows, as the communist government, once very hostile to Christianity, is somehow lessening its arrest against and persecutions against the underground church. And yet persecution does remain, and yet as Christians continue to influence the government and businesses, The state has to recognize that these Christians are not a real viable threat. They're not leading a revolutionary force to overthrow power as much as leading a radical, transformative message of influencing people's lives unto godliness and maintaining submission to the proper authorities. And so may the words of this text inspire us to pray. To pray for all authorities in all nations. Especially those nations that suppress Christianity, which make conversion to Christianity illegal. May we pray that believers might find newfound freedoms to preach the eternal gospel to the multitudes in the darkness of Islam and Hinduism. That they might come to the light of Jesus Christ and be set free. My last comment regarding worship is found in verse 8. And here in this verse, Paul's actually transitioning to the subject of gender roles, exhorting men to lift up their holy hands in worship. To lift up their holy hands 
without anger and without disputing. This final point regarding worship is an appeal for unity. It seems that what pleases God is not theological controversy, nor political wrangling within the church, not angry and hostile infighting, but rather a spirit of humility and joy as God's people are united in the praise of God, their Savior. And so, friends, let us seek to please our Lord and God. To seek what pleases Him by making our corporate worship a weekly priority. We may learn to pray earnestly for the nations and for all kinds of people. We might be united in love with one another, striving forth towards the common goal to seek the glory of God and to make the knowledge of the gospel appeal to all men who are perishing without the knowledge of the truth. One verse 4 it would seem that uh, what is good and pleasing in the sight of God is that all men might be saved and might come to the precious knowledge of the truth. And I want to approach verses 4 through, verses four through 7 as Paul's appeal of doing ministry God's way. And ministry God's way includes a universal gospel, a universal savior. And a universal mission for all of God's people. Now those of us in the reformed camp of the Protestant faith. Come to verse 4 with a little bit of unsettling in our stomachs. When it says that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Not that we have a problem with that in and of itself. But how does this coincide with our precious teachings of predestination... Where God elects believers from the foundation of the world to be saved. How is it that this, the teachings of a reformed faith are reconciled with this verse of such a universal desire on God's part? How is it that God can genuinely want all men to be saved? Is Paul contradicting himself with those verses that talk about only the elect will be saved and only... Was it the chosen of Israel and the lost sheep whom Christ came to redeem and set free from sin and bondage? Well, it's for this this reason that there are, are some who would insist that this verse trumps all others and denies that there is any type of sovereign predestination which elects some men to eternal life and others to eternal punishment. Such uh, teaching would argue that, that God ultimately must give up his sovereign right and leave the issue of salvation completely up to the will of man. The problem with such conclusions from this verse and a few others is that it does not do justice to the broad scriptural teaching that first man's will is dead in sin. That we are in such bondage that we cannot seek out and choose Christ. We cannot respond to the gospel without the Holy Spirit first penetrating and giving us life in what we call effectual calling 
and giving us the ability to respond to the free offer of the gospel. So, what do we make of this teaching in verse 4? Well, I would contend that the, the simple message that Paul is communicating is that, yes, God genuinely desires the salvation of all men, that God does not delight in the punishment of the wicked, and yet it is not God's ultimate will for the salvation of all men because God is committed to a higher good than universal salvation. God is committed ultimately to his own glory in which his grace is revealed through the salvation of the elect and his justice is honored by the punishment of the non-elect. Now there were those who there are those who would cry foul that God is being unfair. But of course we would need to respond with a question of our own in terms of fairness. Is it fair that any of us should be given a free pass into heaven on the merits of Christ alone? If God were only fair, we would all perish in our sins. We don't want God's justice. We want God's mercy, his grace for us in Christ. Now, a further point to be made is that nowhere do the scriptures ever deny man's full responsibility to respond to the gospel of grace. We also know that it's because of the fall in our sinful nature that man's heart is hardened and refuses to repent and believe the message of the gospel. The Bible consistently upholds these two truths, that God is fully sovereign in all things, all things in providence and all things in salvation. And yet, at the same time, each and every person is fully responsible for how they respond to the message of life in the gospel. And yet, in our finite minds, we cannot reconcile these two infinite truths And so theologians call such a thing an antimony, putting it in the same category as the Trinity, or the doctrine of the Incarnation, these wonderful truths that we understand in part, but we will never know them in full, if at all, only in glory. In a nutshell, Paul was teaching that the gospel is for everyone. It is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. It is not just for Westerners, but it's for every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And may our hearts join with God. To have a genuine and earnest desire to see that no one perishes. But that every creature, every human being would repent, turn to Christ, and be saved. Not only do we have a universal gospel, we have a universal Savior. Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior of the world. And under the Old Covenant, Moses was the mediator between God and the people of Israel. And Moses was confronted with this recurring problem of how could a holy God dwell with a sinful and rebellious people? An isolated, similar instant. We find Job lamenting with this cry. 
If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hands upon us both, meaning he and God. Someone to remove God's rod from me, then I would speak up without fear. Well, both Job's and Israel's longing is fulfilled in Christ. Christ alone is our mediator. He's the one who represents humanity before Almighty God. And he is able to fulfill that role as the God-man because he was completely holy. He was without sin. And he alone was worthy to enter into that most holy place to appease God's almighty wrath by offering up his own precious blood as an atonement, a substitutionary sacrifice, dying in our place that we might be spared the punishment and wrath of God. Verse 6 explains further that he gave himself up as a ransom. Terrorists take hostages and hold them up for ransom. You and I were held ransom by sin and by death, which ruled us. It was Jesus who paid the price. It was Jesus who, at the cost of his own precious blood, purchased men for God. And this was good and pleasing in the sight of God. And he was satisfied with the sacrifice of his own son. Now, there are people who will argue that such a sacrifice was completely unnecessary. God must be cruel to send his own son to a cross to die. But I'd argue such notions deeply misunderstand the measure of God's holiness and the depths of human depravity. You see, God cannot merely dismiss our sin. God is perfectly just. Our sin must be punished. And any notion that somehow we can make up the difference, that somehow we can pay back this debt we owe, is nonsense. Friend, we need a mediator, an infinite, perfect, holy man who's able to bridge that infinite gap to reconcile men to God. There are others who take issue with the teaching that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And yet, in John 14, Jesus says these very things, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Friends, this is not arrogance. It is not arrogance to say Jesus is the only way. It may not be, may not be tolerant in our age of tolerance. But we need to remember that to, to, to assent or to say that all other religions are just as adequate as Christianity to make our way to God, is to make a mockery of the cross, is to make Christ crucified completely irrelevant. And such teaching is foolishness to those who are blind, who need the Holy Spirit, to open up their eyes, to enable them to see that which is good and pleasing in God's sight. And yet still there are others who say from this text that 
it says that Jesus must have died for all without any exceptions whatsoever. Now it is very true that the Bible does have such universal language that, that God so loved the world. Yes, he did. Yes, he does. John 3.16. And it surely gives us this sense that Jesus died for all people. But only as we come to reconcile with, with, the, the, with the clear teaching of Scripture. And understand that Jesus is the only sacrifice for all men. He is the only one worthy and sufficient. And we can also affirm that Jesus' own blood is sufficient for every last person in human history. And yet we have to reckon this teaching with the very fact that Jesus said that he came for the lost sheep, that he knows who are his, that only those whom the Father draws to him will come to him by faith. And we must counter with our contention that if Jesus died for those people who will one day perish in eternal torment, then that must deny the efficacy of his sacrifice of atonement. Friend, Jesus' precious blood is fully sufficient, fully adequate, but only efficacious, only applied to those whom the Father has chosen to dwell with him for all eternity in his glorious household. Jesus is our mediator. He is a mediator of God's people, past, present, and future. And he commissions us with a mission to proclaim Christ as the only universal Savior to all men who are perishing in sin. Paul makes his final his appeal in verse 7, in which he gives us this commission, his commission to preach this universal gospel to every last human being. It is not our job to discern who the elect is or isn't. It is our job to be a witness to all the dying, those who are desperate and without hope, lest they hear the message of eternal life found only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is our prayer that Westminster Presbyterian Church would be a place of worship, to be a house of prayer, that each of us will be committed to this ministry of reconciliation, taking the gospel to the farthest reaches of the earth by beginning in our own backyards with our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers, and that we might earn the right to speak the truth in love by living quiet and peaceful lives showing forth the way of life eternal through Christ Jesus our Lord. Such is good and pleasing in the sight of God. Now at last I come to the thorny issue of God's ways, of God's definition for gender roles in the church. And there seems to be two issues that Paul is going to address in verses 9 through 15. Namely, women's dress in corporate worship and the relation of women to the authorities in the church. Notice in verse 9, 
Paul exhorts women to dress modestly, with decency and with propriety. It is good and pleasing in the sight of God when men pray and are not angry with disputing, and when women dress in a manner that honors their feminine dignity as image bearers of the living God. Church is not the place to show off or to make fashion statements. We are to come into the house of God to honor Jesus Christ and to not seek attention for ourselves. Last summer, the associate pastors did a three-part sermon series on human sexuality and the problems of lust. And as is often the case in such sermon messages, we tend to target the men uh, more than the women. But I was impressed in the after, aftermath of those sermons that uh, there was one, at least one woman who approached my wife with the question of, why is it that the pastors don't address women's issues regarding, namely, modesty and dress? Well, it seems that just as men struggle with the lust of the eyes, so that with women there is a strong inclination to seek after male attention by way of their clothing. They may arouse the interest of other men. We see this in the church. I've had a growing awareness of this problem in the broader culture as we see how the culture is bombarding women with these images of perfection. Brainwashing young ladies' minds with this notion that they need to wear provocative dress in order to gain the attention and the affection of men. And so our women are filled with much confusion over a very difficult matter of the heart. I want to say this to our women in, in using, using this, these verses. I want to, I want to challenge you, uh, ladies. As you, as you recognize women and young ladies and teens, as you recognize women who are pushing the limits of, of modesty, do not judge them. Do not talk about them to your friends. Don't go tell your pastors that they need to do something about it. Rather, go to such women and befriend them. Love them. Earn their trust. And then speak the truth and love regarding issues of modesty. Because such a woman is clearly crying out for attention and for guidance from a other, another godly woman. I don't believe we need modesty police around here enforcing legalistic standards. But we, what we do need is godly women who are helping other women to find their satisfaction in Christ alone. Because the real issue in the matter of modesty is a heart issue. You see, it's in the woman's heart that is longing for the attention of a man who is not her husband that is driving her dress. And she is finding what, what she's doing is misplacing the intimacy with God with a counterfeit which will never satisfy the longing of the heart. 
Well, Paul unpacks what he means by modesty by explaining that this is not with hairstyles or jewelry or clothing, but rather with clothing ourselves, adorning ourselves with good works. In other words, character defines your selfhood, not your fashion statement. Now, I don't believe Paul was necessarily forbidding jewelry or nice dresses. In fact, the, the language Paul uses is very similar to 1 Peter 3, which seems to be communicating a principle of balance to guard against the excesses of immodesty and the excesses of gaudiness and attention-grabbing. By all means, ladies, look your best. Come in the finest that you have. Wonderful, one of the wonderful qualities I enjoy about my wife is that she dresses nice. Even after a long day where she's at home all day and doesn't go anywhere and is with the kids and teaching them, she still looks nice when I come home at the end of the day to greet me. Sometimes I see women who are at the grocery store who sometimes look like they just were out of bed five minutes ago. And I, I wonder why it is that they seem to lack this sense of dignity to take care of themselves. But of course, women have problems of excessiveness as well. In another church uh, years ago, uh, my wife would attend women's events, and no matter how hard she tried, she always felt underdressed. She sensed that there was a spirit in these women of competition, of trying to outdo one another with the way that they dressed. And we are very grateful that she has never had that experience here at Westminster. But ladies, I believe the core issue here is that you ought to seek what is good and pleasing in the sight of your Heavenly Father. Because your outward appearance is an expression of your inner delight in Christ. An expression of your appreciation for the dignity you have been given as a well-loved daughter of the living God. Well, I come to the last uh, thorny issue in verses 11 through 15, the matter of women and their roles in relationship to authority, and many pastors, no doubt, are tempted to duck and run, to punt, to make excuses that we're out of time, but I am happy to address this, these difficult matters in verses 11 through 15 in which Paul was defining a set of boundaries for women in ministry. Let me just say at the beginning, in a nutshell, that women are called to serve and to use their gifts everywhere. Everywhere except in the pulpit ministry of preaching the word and the governing role of officers as elders and overseers in the church. Now, there are still many who would insist that 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 is overly restrictive. There are those who would even accuse Paul of being a chauvinist. But I would contend that Paul is actually liberating women, enabling them to flourish in ministry within the gracious restraints that God has designed for the church. Notice, first of all, in verse 11, Paul says, A woman should learn. Stop right there. 
The fact that women should learn was a very radical idea in the first century. To quote uh, Professor Dr. Doriani, he says that the first century Greek and Jewish cultures generally considered women mentally inferior. They judged women's education a waste of time at best and a cause of temptation at worst. Ladies, Jesus was quite radical in the fact that he allowed women to follow him and learn from him, as is witnessed by Mary sitting at his feet while her sister Martha prepared the meal. Likewise, Paul overcomes his own pharisaical prejudices by including women in his his company and encouraging them in their ministry in the church. The Bible affirms the equal dignity between men and women. We are both image bearers of God. And yet, the genders do have distinct roles. He says that he does not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Paul roots his argument not on cultural whim, but rather he roots it in the creation and the fall. In the created order, it was the man who was created first to be the head of the home and to be the head of the church. And it's to the man that is given the task, the burden of authority and leadership, and to protect the women that they might thrive in fulfilling their God-given calling to use their gifts. And then Paul appeals to the fall in which the woman was deceived by the evil one. Now, I do not believe Paul was saying here that women are inferior to men, or that women are somehow more easily deceived than men, that women have no monopoly on the ability to be deceived. But yet, Paul does seem to be suggesting, at least, that there are differences in the genders that help us understand God's design of leadership and authority. Let me illustrate with this picture. Imagine with me, if you will, if we, if we ask ten elementary school teachers to come and meet with us, and we ask them, which of the two genders was more likely to question authority, to challenge the teacher, to interrupt and disrupt class? I would reckon that maybe nine out of ten, perhaps many without even blinking an eyeball, would say that little boys would be the culprits, who are more likely to confront And it would seem that there is something in males that God has placed there to equip them to be confrontational, to confront error, and to be equipped to lead. Now, we all know that there are exceptions to this at the individual level. There are women with tremendous leadership gifts, and there are men who have none. And yet, all the examples we find in Scripture of women in supposed leadership roles. Deborah, the judge, remember her? Miriam, the prophetess. Huldah, the prophetess during the time of Josiah, who was consulted about the law. Even the women who are found teaching in various ways in the New Testament, all of these women were under the authority of either the priests or the apostles and the elders. It would seem that the men at times would consult the women who were wise. And yet the final decisions of leadership rested upon the shoulders of the men. 
I like to call, I like to call my wife my Secretary of State. She is my Condoleezza Rice. She is my most trusted advisor. I respect her judgment and I consult her on many matters. Nevertheless, I, the one ultimately, have to decide and own the responsibility of leadership for my household. And I believe that that same model applies to the church. So ladies, what does this mean for women in ministry? Women, I believe that you are encouraged to use your gifts as widely and as broadly and as fruitfully as possible within these scriptural bounds. Obvious, what is restricted here is that women do not preach or exhort biblical doctrine to mixed company. They do not serve as elders on the session. Now, to begin with, notice that the ministry of preaching, this is the most authoritative teaching function in the church. And yet, even all the men who serve in this pulpit have been examined, have been tested, or are are currently under the oversight of a session or a presbytery. But as you work downward from the pulpit to the Sunday school class, to the home fellowship group, you find more and more layers of authority and oversight stemming down from the pastoral offices and the ruling elders. So, let's pick a case. What about a woman teaching in an adult Sunday school class of mixed company? Well, I believe that there are times a woman can do that. And here's why. And here's how. As a woman is under the clear oversight of the pastoral and elder leadership, as she is under the oversight of the clear male leadership of the class itself, and as long as it's not a matter of of direct doctrinal exposition akin to authoritative preaching and teaching, but rather where oftentimes women can serve faithfully teaching a mixed company, is as subject matter experts of particular special topics that women may have by their training or by their gender have special knowledge that is beneficial to God's people. There's also a principle of duration that's important. The longer you fill any office of of teaching, whether a pulpit or even a social class, the longer you fulfill that office and function, the more inherent authority you have by setting the agenda, by by establishing what's going to be taught. So there's a difference between long-term teaching and occasional special topic teaching. give you a recent example. Some of you may have been in Larry Woodruff's class last week on the matters of the new spirituality. They had a guest speaker, a woman, the author of the book they're using, Spellbound. Uh, Ms. Marcia Montenegro came. And what was clear in that setting is that she, as a guest, was clearly under the oversight of, one, the teacher, who is an approved teacher of our adult education and uh, committee and our session, and a gifted woman coming to offer a one-time blessing of using her gifts, and we would say that she offered her gifts without compromising biblical principles. And I would argue that that these principles do justice to the scriptures by allowing women to serve in a multitude of ways. 
and have that freedom to do so as the men are exercising their roles as the authoritative under-shepherds of Christ's flock. Well, there is one last thorny issue I have to address before we're done, and that's this last verse in which Paul seems to be out of his mind when he says that women will be saved through childbearing. Has Paul become a heretic? Is Paul advocating a kind of idealistic matriarchy? new religion. Well, no and no. Rather, the context here is the discussion of gender roles. He's been discussing the matter of a woman's submission to the governing and teaching authorities in the church. And here what Paul is saying is that it is appealing to the blessing that women can expect to receive as they submit to God's ordained place for them. Now, the word saved in the Greek had a variation of uses just as it does in our own English today. And here, Paul is clearly not talking about saved in terms of justification. He is probably more likely talking about saved in terms of preservation. To take this literally, it could be saying that Paul preserves women through bearing children which is always a threat under the curse. And of course, we know that, that would, if that was the case here, that's not an absolute promise because there are, have been women, even godly and faithful,